Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Nice. Thank you so much for listening to Try Love, a literal roundtable podcast about movies we saw or people we met at or through the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilon Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. My name is Jason Daphnis. I cannot abide the funk tonight, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Nobody loves me, Gris. I'm Cody Narvison, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Nobody told me to suffer. That was my idea. I'm Harry Mackin, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. And returning once more uh, to the podcast, uh, famed guest Charlie Mackin. Hi, I'm Charlie Mackin. You can find me on Twitter at CharlieMander13. You guys said you'd fire me, but I guess you'll fire me tomorrow. (laughs) This podcast is publishing tomorrow. It is a really tight turnaround, so don't worry. If I find anything fireable, I will remove just your track from the podcast. There'll be like and six it's, minutes. It's trial of after dark too. We should talk about that, huh? When was Had, the last time we been recorded? The case for a while. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. I was rocking to Cody about how we, uh, we haven't done a fresh out the shower type podcast in a long time. And especially not like right after, uh, at like after a nighttime showing, I think we did the morning after the Halloween fest with Aaron was the last time we might've done this. this well, I mean, we this used proximity. to be, Back in our wild days of abandon, we used to go to the Trilon and then drive back to your office downtown and just record often one or two in a single night. Remember that? After a watch? Do you remember that? We were younger men then. The olden days of 2019 (laughs) when we were 26 and 27 years old? We did that specifically for hackers. And I know we did it for a couple of other uh, Sunshine with Ben Hansen and Ben Carson. We, um, maybe a couple of so other many, ones too. So many but, of these yeah. movies. This one wasn't time. one. Yeah. Uh, special circumstances led us to record this one on Tuesday night, published on Wednesday. Uh, apologies for any editing inconsistencies. Oh, yeah. John Carson. You. Excuse me. Who did you Sorry say? Sorry to interrupt. I said Jim Ben Carson. Car- Ben Carson. Wow, you really fucked that guy's name up. Both of those yeah. guys' names up. Uh, thank you very much, Charlie, for being on our podcast yet again. Um, as I understand, this is a pod, or excuse me, you, you made this decision uh, on the way home to join us uh, for this podcast. So I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts, as I'm sure uh, the less, rest of our captive audiences. Um, but we do need to uh, mention uh, one. Oh, wait, wait, wait. For listeners to the audio version of this podcast, um, if, if you're not watching the video version, what the fuck are you doing? It's the superior, far superior version. Uh, Cody has now ingested the first uh, hot jelly you're bean not, of the night. Je- you're not Cody. supposed to talk about the bean. You're just supposed I'm to let it about pass. The it's Try Love After Dark. Nobody's, don't nobody's talk watching. about bean. No. Uh, tell what, me, tell uh, me what, what you just flavor ate. was it? Yeah. Uh, is, it was Carolina Reaper. So oh, it shit. Is, it is Try Love After Dark, folks. Spicy. Well, Let's see go. how this goes. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to perform as many uh, bean check-ins as possible. I'll perform chest compressions. I will get the defibrillator. We'll, we'll uh, clear and we'll make sure that you're still going, still alive, Cody. Uh, somewhere along the line here, but um, that's our first bean yeah. check-in. Yeah. I hopefully hopefully you won't that. be beaning out the dead by the end of this. Is mm. is this a good sound effect for the, for the bean? There that you is go. the only sound effect that you should go with. Good okay. call. <laughs> 
That's uh, that's that's the first bean check-in. Look forward to more. Uh, but for right now, I did not prepare a summary of this movie. Um, I'm just going to stumble my way through it, and you guys can correct me as we go. Uh, so Nick Cage is in Bringing Out the Dead, uh, the second film, I believe, in the Nick Cage uh, National Treasure series playing at the trial on all June, uh, all, all July, and most of August, I believe. It's a summer series. Summer of Cage. Summer of Cage. Check it out at trialon.org. Uh, but before then, we should talk about what this movie is. Bringing Out the Dead, 1999, directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Paul Schrader, uh, starring Nick Cage and Patricia Arquette and Tom Sizemore and Ving Rhames and a lot of other people. I have no idea what claims this movie has generated. So if maybe if, if somebody else has the Google for that, uh, we can talk about that. I'm trying to do my best, like, dead mimeograph of Aaron's whole shtick, but I'm really, really, really boffing it. He, he does this whole thing. Uh, with with a plum, um, Nick Cage as an ambulance driver in New York City uh, slowly loses his mind over the uh, death he cannot get over of a former. Oh, you're both giving me the uh, maybe it's not. Are you both like this? I know Harry's like this. Are you both fucking like this? <laughs> Who do you think yes. I got it from? <laughs> oh my god. Well, you tell me what the fuck it's about then, Mackins. You do this Wonder Twin Fusion no, Dance no, shit. You're doing you great. take over the pack. No, you're no doing great. I'm done. Just keep it I'm up. off the pack. Goodbye. Yeah. Well, wow. He even according to according to Letterboxd, Bringing Out the Dead, uh, directed by Martin Scorsese, uh, released in the year 1999, 121 minutes long. Not a lot of people know that. 121 <laughs> minutes long. Um, tagline: Saving a life is the ultimate rush. 48 hours in the life of a burnt out paramedic. Uh, sorry, the bean is is hitting me in flashes. Once called Father Frank for his efforts to rescue lives, Frank <laughs> Frank sees the ghosts and beans of those he failed to save around every turn. He has tried everything he can to get fired, calling in sick, delaying taking beans where he might have to face one more victim. He couldn't help yet cannot quit the bean on his own. That is in a in a in a nutshell what bringing out the dead is about. Yeah, a fine summary, Cody. Thank you. Yeah, um, a fine summary, a plagiarized summary. Uh, this would this does uh, disservice. I credited me. my source. You did. Uh, it's not plagiarism. It's just we should um, talk maybe a little stealing. bit about like what this movie is all about, right? Because I feel like that context does not prepare you for what a batshit insane like it doesn't it entrance doesn't. into hell this movie is, right? Like well, it's. I would say we, that we talked a lot about um, After Hours, right, while we were we watching did. this, because that seems to be Scorsese's sort of spiritual cousin to this movie. Um, this is like an unbroken 48 hours, not literally, not sort of like Birdman style, but you really, it really steps on the gas and really doesn't let up. Yeah. And I think that the big formal turn here, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but like to me was really getting into the mind of an EMT or a paramedic yeah. in New York over the course of like this endless night world where they yeah. are sort of like helpless to do anything but continue to bear witness to the horrors that unfold in front of them. And and I think formally that's why we never get a reset. But right now we should reset because just before we hit recording, we said, let's let Charlie talk about what she wants to talk about off the top of the podcast. And then Harry kind of, you really, really took that away. Uh, Charlie, you saw this for the first time. I think we were all seeing this for the first time, um, but you had a lot to say about it. You had a lot of thoughts and a lot of interjections as we were talking about it after the pod, after the movie. Um, what did you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm fresh off this movie. We like literally just drove here. So that probably has to do with why I like it so much. I feel like I always really like movies directly after coming out of yeah, them. Yeah, me too. Um, but I will say, I feel like, I'm a bit more of a blank slate on this than the rest of you because you keep talking about all these other movies that people have done and making references to these other things. And I have no idea what any of those movies are. 
Um, so I feel like I just kind of came into this with no context, like haven't seen any of the other writers movies or directors movies, just watching this. And I really enjoyed it, had a great time, even if it was very anxiety producing, um, you know, and really liked what the movie was doing without having any of the context of like the MCU of this guy's movies, apparently that you guys (laughs) are talking about. (laughs) Well, see, this is, it's really a murderer's row too, right? Because not only is it directed by Martin Scorsese, but it's also written by Paul Schrader and oh boy, is it a Paul Schrader movie as well. So there really are two competing MCUs that will really give you a lot of context, but it's Mm. really great to hear. Charlie even said at the end, well, I I felt like the female character was a little underwritten and I was like, that's how you know it's a Schrader movie, baby. (laughs) So uh, she was really locked in and you really, really liked a lot of what this movie was doing what what like stuck with you at first about it um it's it's a big tone movie which i love um i love how it's like the you couldn't look away at any point in this movie there was almost like no downtime between parts because even the parts that weren't high intensity were still high tension um i think jason you talked about how when they go into the oasis like you just kept waiting for something to happen even though nothing was going to happen like that mood doesn't really ever go away yeah. um and nick cage does a great job of like keeping the intensity just in his body and in his face at all times and it just gets worse throughout the movie he did really great on that there's a great way to say it he's got a lot of baggage under those bags and under his eyes uh Cody, you, I'm sorry, I took that away from you too. No, no, that's okay. No, you're right. Uh, Nicholas Cage, it looks like he just turned freaking 30 years old in this movie. You know what I'm saying? Um, hey. Looks worse for the wear. Um, yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> thank you for not getting rid of that sound bite. Uh, yeah, uh, on, I agreed. Big, um, like, mood, piece. Um, the tone sort of really stuck out to me as well. And I'm, I guess I should say, pulling back the curtain a little bit, I did not. Uh, I'm not fresh out of the shower, I think, as as Jason uh, described it with this movie. I watched it last night, and so I'm taking, um, you know, little uh, drip drops of adrenaline, inject, uh, injecting them right into my veins to try and kind of get where everybody else is at right now and eating some some spicy jelly beans uh, for, for zest and flavor. But, um, yeah, I mean, as the way that I sort of uh, – for myself kind of uh, took to characterizing the the mood of this movie it felt like um yeah, for all the uh, you know mark went off the trial of bingo card for cody bullshitting about genre but like this stuck out to me as like a really good and maybe one of my favorite recent um like recent watch uh examples of like a good neo-noir you know all, i think all the the pieces are there it's very um it gives the feeling of being very unpolished we're in a lot of unpolished sort of environments there's lots of um uh inconsistent neon lights there's lots of shadows you get some nick cage narration there's a lot of um you know a, a lot of the action takes place at night there's a lot of um, the same sort of heightened or, or rapid sensational um, editing and camera work that you would maybe expect from uh, a Scorsese joint, um, but, you know, reined in just a bit while still giving this sort of unstable feeling that helps us get into Frank Pierce's head a little bit more. And on the note of, you know, we are sort of descending into madness. We are sort of meant to feel like we are also um, in this weird heightened, unstable um, drug riddled, sleep deprived state that, that Frank is in. 
Well, at the same time, you know, you you throw in, um, you know, these weirdly soothing needle drops. Um, you know, what's the frequency, Kenneth? By REM, red red wine. Um, you get uh, really darkly amusing scenes uh, of levity with all of Frank's co paramedics, uh, played by um, John Goodman, Ving Rhames, with one of my favorite, if not you know, my favorite probably scene of the movie um Amazing. tom sizemore as well yeah uh, tom sizemore and his boss who's like playfully not firing him just a lot of really great competing energies to to keep you enthralled while also doing the thing where you can't really feel super stressed or, or tense without or you know properly without also feeling the other side of that coin where um you know you're, you're feeling good all of a sudden the rug's gonna get yanked out and that's when the real sort of descent begins if that makes sense yeah, speaking of that descent, I think I want to talk a little bit about that, right? Because like I think that this movie extremely effectively, maybe more than even after hours, and in part because of the treatment of the paramedics, it really is about dropping you into this sort of inverted world that EMTs and paramedics need to necessarily inhabit, even just sort of like logically, like I, I had never really thought um, at first about what it must feel like to be a paramedic and to be out there on the streets every night and, and what it would feel like, the trauma of seeing death in that way over and over again and what it would do to your ability to perceive the world and what it would make the world look like. I mean, um, Scorsese and Schumacher do a, a lot of Schumacher. Um, they do a lot of uh, like literally tilting the camera upside down, tilting it sideways. Um, even the shots that take place during the day look like they're at night because of the way the alleyways work in this movie. Um, and even all of the other paramedics, and Charlie and I talked about this a little bit, they all have their own sort of like, everybody, nobody in this movie is doing well, right? The patients, the EMTs, the the paramedics, the doctors, the boss, nobody is coping with what they're having to do very adequately. I think because it's gen it's genuinely meant to be an impossible thing to cope with. And we get to see all of these different characters navigating how they cope with it themselves. And so every character in this movie becomes kind of a foil to Nicolas Cage, who is our POV character. And we learn so much about what he's going through and what he's thinking, not only through his monologue or through his journey, but through this common experience that everybody else is having as well. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, um, I th <laughs> sorry, Cody. Uh, I think um, the, the device that they're doing with the EMTs in this movie was like one of my favorite parts of it because you kind of get to see three distinct different ways of dealing with this that is not working for Frank and why it's not working for him each way. So, I mean, first of all, you've got the first EMT is just pure apathy, right? Like not caring about the patients is how he gets through this. And That's that John Goodman's character. Yeah. And that doesn't work for him. And then you move on to the second one who wants to be a savior Right. And he wants to save everyone and he lives off that high and he loves having people view him as God. Although it's it's interesting to note, too, he's also willing to let go in a way that Frank isn't. Right. Because when somebody dies, he's just like, well, it, that was God's plan. Hashtag God's plan. Yeah. Um, and then when you get to the <laughs> yeah. And then you get to the third character whose um, coping mechanism is just hate. Right. Like he doesn't care about those people, not in an apathetic way, but because he hates them and he thinks that they don't deserve to live to the point where 
you know, when he doesn't want to save somebody or he tried and it didn't work, he just literally wants to kill that person. Right. The last time we see that character, Tom Sizemore's character, he's literally destroying his own ambulance out in the parking yeah. lot with a bat. Which, he, which right. he had previously he had previously touted as like unkillable. It's like it's like yes, it's like him and that he can't like stop it. That he wouldn't right. Stop, he can't right? snap. Right. Yeah. Um, he lets he lets the and and my favorite thing about that character is actually that I think that the movie makes a really good sort of like classically Scorsese empathetic um, way of getting us to understand where each of them got, how each of them arrived at that conclusion, even the hateful guy, right? Like I think that we follow Nicolas Cage's character, Frank and that guy at the time that we do, because that's the time when Frank is getting as close as he ever gets to that guy's mentality. Yeah. I mean, it kind of gets to the point where Frank almost becomes that guy and then he pulls back from it by saving that guy and stopping um, this other guy from killing him. Uh, And that's kind of when he pulls back and we kind of shift into Frank's way of finally getting to how he's going to cope with this, right? Because we realize that Frank empathizes more with the patients than he does with the other EMTs. He sees himself more in this guy than he does in the other people. And then even to go further, he sees himself more in the ghosts than he does in the living, right? And so we get to the point where Frank's version of this separate from the other three is just to witness people. He talked about witnessing people a lot. Um, and he gets to this point where he realizes his way of dealing with this and his way of getting what he needs to out of this is just to witness the death of these people, even if there's nothing he can do to the point where he even forces the death. Um, and spoilers, (laughs) spoilers. And, uh, lets the father go in his mind. Um, Early on, he talks about how if he would just look over his shoulder, he would see the person asking to leave. And throughout the movie, you can hear Nick Cage asking to leave, right? He wants to, he just wants to be fired. He just wants to go to sleep. He just wants to die, right? Nick Cage is more of a ghost than an EMT at this point. And that's kind of how he gets through his day is to realize that he can help those ghosts. That's a good way to put it. I think also like we're getting back to we talked we've talked so much about like uh, how they're coping with these things, how each of these EMTs cope and they're like characterized by their uh, approaches to it. And I think it's worth mentioning like what this movie is insinuating that they actually are coping with. And like at a core level, it's it's like at a core level, it's assuming or excuse me, it's positing that they are struggling with uh, like both like that incredible tension of needing to distance themselves enough to see people as bodies that need care and uh, yes. care, like the, the emotional care enough to like continue the job to fight through the bullshit. He has that scene with Patricia Arquette where he describes uh, like five years of hell that he's been in this job uh, and most of it being dark, most of it being hateful and loud and making him want to quit. But then there's that glow that happens when something good finally which happens. Which is like an addiction is the way it's framed. Exactly. And, exactly. Like he can't get rid of it. And which they show at the end of the movie where after he has witnessed this man and let him go and basically yeah. shepherded him to death, he gets the glow. And that's how you know like, oh, this is his way of being an EMT is to witness these people mm-hmm, and allow mm-hmm. them to die in and, a respectful way not in a way that makes them angry at him forever exactly and i think that is like the movie 
he says, I think he doesn't have quite an understanding at that point of what like the glow, what the reason, what like the, the good of his job is. I think he's saying that because he's saying like, oh, you know, from a very EMT perspective, like miracles happen and things, things like good things happen and you can save lives and stuff. I think the real like glow that this movie is positing, and I'm using that as shorthand for like the reason that he's continuing to do the job, you know, sort of the why EMTs do what they do is like that end state of satisfaction you're talking about that he feels like he's made a difference like, that he can sort of rest easy with the choices he made with with the things that he's done with the people he's helped rather than the actual doing of the work you know like because right after almost right after that scene where he's talking about the glow of something good happening finally he saves the life of a barely born child twins to a you know quote-unquote virgin mother and then he just wants to get the fuck out of there. He just wants to quit. He wants to leave. He wants to end his shift uh, because he's like suddenly got this like flee, this instinct to flee. And that to me was a real friction point. Why would he talk about like the glow being the thing yes. that he would continue doing? And and I'm still like I'm no Mackin. I am not sure what to make of this. All right. I don't I I don't know like why, but it, that builds such tension in that moment of and it's very quick that he gets back in the truck and he's i forget which emt he's with but he's like no we have to like we have to not take this next call we have to call it a night is it just because he he wants to go out on a high note kind of thing well he's with ving rames at that point and and like ving rames is in the high right like he saved the baby Mm. and he's like we saved that baby and he he doesn't have it and i i think you're right i think there is a lot of tension there yeah, I, I think just really adding some padding um, from what, I mean, the rest of you three have been talking about, the sort of juggling that we see these characters, um, do the, the balancing act, rather, of apathy, um, empathy, compassion, the sort of daily grind of it all. Um, uh, partway through, it did click um, pretty well that this was a, a Paul Schrader movie because of how much these conversations tie back to, to something like labor and that... Um, that monologue that I mean, that inner monologue that um, I think Charlie called out initially was um, that also stood out to me. And and like that is sort of um, uh, I guess that monologue w- felt particularly traitory. Um and was also, you know, it's something of, I guess, a thesis for what we're seeing. The it's less about saving lives and it is about bearing witness. Um, I, I think he uses the phrase grief mop. He's a grief mop for these these occurrences in these people. And usually it's just usually it's enough just to show up not always but but usually in most cases um and uh the sort of um the the knolls and the mr o's of the world um i guess like where it can tie back into labor it's you know it's it's one evening um like we're we're brought through Evening by even, uh, evening by evening, there are so many, uh, only so many hours in a shift. And when you know the the knolls and the Mister O's of the world are sort of bringing vis- viscerally reminding you um, of the the same experiences you're having, the same people you're seeing over and over, the same like uncontrollable like the things that are just gonna happen um, when you're on the job, no matter like no matter what that you have no control over. That sort of literalizing of it. Um, uh, obviously the sort of Sisyphean nature of it um, obviously yes. like pushes um, you know, pushes uh, pushes guys like Frank to, I mean, they're living moment to moment. And that, that makes that so- sort of shift all the more, all the more dangerous, you know, one moment you need to, you need to feel like you are able to be uh, a savior of the people of this city. And the next moment you are um, very briefly allowed, um, you know, a moment, uh, uh, just a moment of, of solitude, uh, all sorts of, you know, coping mechanisms are, are on the table. Um, and 
you know, the, I guess by nature of that job, I, I you know, I, I've never held that type of job. My job is starkly less important than it is than um, being a paramedic um, by many leagues. Um, but I can only imagine, at least like what this movie is presenting, you need to be, you need to to be able to or be comfortable existing, you know, flitting between those two extremes pretty rapidly. And when any of these characters, when Frank or anybody else chooses to not shift moment to moment, to not take the call or to not um, sort of move to the next thing when they sort of, uh, when they bask on one side of it for too long, I feel like that's when the tension starts to creep up, at least as, as a viewer. Yeah, uh, I feel like I wouldn't be a Mackin if I didn't point out that all of the problems that these EMTs are facing are systemic um, and they can't be solved individually. Um, all of these problems of the cyclical nature of people keep coming back and they don't have a place for this person and doctors are pushing them between hospitals. These are all systemic. And mm-hmm. none of the four ANTs, ANTs in this movie um, reach their glow state, I guess we'll call it, uh, by working by the book. None yeah. of all four yeah. of them are able to hit this state where they feel like they've done a good job or they feel like the job is worth it while they're working the way that they're supposed to be working. There's there's that great scene near the beginning uh, where I forget, I don't know if her character has a name, but she's basically a nurse or a doctor and she sits down with people basically like blaming them for the problem they're coming yes. in with. The guy who's been snorting speed for four days and finally feels like his heart is going too fast and she's like, well, maybe if you didn't do that and this is how, like she's making a stand-up bit out of like three or four people in a row and clearly, like I thought the movie was just like doing that as a quick jab but then it makes it into like a bit where it happens like three or four times throughout the movie and that's speaking exactly what you're talking about, Charlie, where like there, there's no solution within the confines of the system as, as designed, right? And I think that's playing into that conflict, that uh, tension, that what was the word coping mechanisms that these people need to have to, to like effectively do the job and care for humans. Yeah, I, I'm really loving the way that that really all three of you have been characterizing it. I love the way that the the labor issue in this movie, it locks into so many other of the mutual, like the non mutually exclusive contradictions that you're talking about, Jason. To me, the, the central tension in this movie that Cody, you brought up really well, is that there there is this job that these people, including Frank, right, quote unquote, Father Frank, um, he, he got involved because of his love for humanity, right? Like because he wanted to save people, because he wanted to be a part of this community, because he believed in it. And because of the job that he has to do now, he is being like those exact feelings are being leveraged against him and broken from him, right? It's like they are being exploited in this labor sense. And he is being isolated repeatedly from the community in which he is meant to serve, right? So instead of like he grew up in this neighborhood, right? And he loves this neighborhood. That's why he wanted to become a paramedic. Now that he's actually a paramedic, he never gets to be in the neighborhood because he's asleep during the day and he's out at night. And he, um, the neighborhood is full of ghosts in exact proportion to how much he loves the neighborhood and, and everybody in it, right? And that was the big contradiction that got to me so well is that um, uh, this very like Scorsese Catholic notion of sort of the impossibility of actually loving humanity. Right. Because like, that's, that's Frank's problem, right. Is like, he wants to be there for these people and he wants to love them, but the responsibility of that love isolates him from them because it makes him feel like he has to do something for them and be, be something to them and that he is failing and that he is therefore unworthy of being a part of that, right? So he feels like a failure. He drinks, he tries to get out of his job because he feels he can't do it anymore because he's not good enough, right? So he he is 
um, in a very Paul Schrader classic sense, he is being alienated by labor from his calling, right? And and the ironies of that are are really manifest in this movie because it's demonstrated repeatedly that the exact same feelings that got him into this situation in the first place are what's making it impossible for him to continue in it, right? Well, you know, it wasn't just that he loved the community. It was that, you know, his dad was a bus driver and his mom was a nurse. So he was born to be a combination of the two. Right. What a but, good fucking joke. <laughs> it was very good. But yeah, um, now I might have lost my point I was going to go with here. But oh, right. I was going to say uh, there's a great end of the movie quote that I think Harry already pulled early on about how he's choosing to suffer for this job. Nobody asked him to, they just asked him to do the job. He's the one who chose to suffer for it, which is also a big Catholic notion. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think that's the through line of the entire movie, at least to me. And maybe, maybe we can return to that, but yes, I think that like, I think that Frank's mistake, if he makes a mistake here is that he's come to think of himself as a kind of Jesus. Right. And he's not, none none of them. are. Yeah. Well, well, that's like, that's where my friction comes in. He sees himself as a Jesus. And then he says that 90% of the time he's just observing. You know, like that he's not a savior, that he's not like anybody of any really importance. Is that he says that at that point in the movie, but he's not comfortable with it until the end of the movie is, I think, the big. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Charlie. I don't think he sees himself as a Jesus at all. I think that the second EMT is the one who sees himself as a Jesus. Um, I think that saving people is what Frank says he wants, because that's what all of them say that they want. But I don't think that that's what gives him the glow, right? Because to Jason's point, if saving people is what got him to that state, then saving the baby would get him to this state. right? And that's where I think it comes to Frank doesn't see himself as a part of the living. Frank sees himself as a ghost. He sees himself Hmm. in the dead, which is why helping the ghosts is what gets him to that place, not helping the living. And and this movie is about reframing what it means to help those ghosts. He thought thought that it meant... Uh, if he let them go, he was failing them. Right. So at the beginning of the movie, he brings this guy back by playing the opera and doing anything to pull him back. Because Sinatra. He thought, yeah. By playing um, all of that stuff and pulling every trick out of the book to pull him back because he thought that's what he was supposed to do. And he thought that that would end his months of suffering, but it didn't. What ended his months of suffering was going back to that guy saying, I was wrong. The correct thing to do for you in this situation is to let you go. And and also, and, and maybe this is like one of the most moving parts for me is that he continually sees the, the face of this young girl that he quote unquote failed, right? I can't remember her name, but Maria. but Maria was a was a homeless girl that, that he that was um, that was Rose, I believe. Rose, excuse me, okay. yeah. Uh Maria was a different character. Right. Um mm-hmm. but but Rose was this homeless girl that died under his watch as a paramedic, and he continues to see her face. And throughout the movie, in, in my opinion, and this this latches on to Charlie's reading, um, he thinks that that is sim- that Rose is symbolic of his failure, and that he has to do something to make it up to her. He has to save somebody else. He has to like yeah. make it all right that that he let her die. She continually says, "Why did you let me die?" And then at the end of the movie, she tells him, um, "Like you don't have to suffer. Nobody asked you to." And it's revealed that that's not what grief is, right? Like, and, and I think that there's something so human and so empathetic about that notion that when we feel grief or when we feel any kind of pain, our first, um, like reflex is to try to stop it, right. To try to heal yeah. it. 
And that's that's what Frank is doing too. And then at the end of this movie, it's revealed he wasn't seeing Rose because something was wrong. He was seeing Rose because he missed her, right? Because he was grieving for her. Right. So it's, yeah, it's this idea that if you don't try to stop it and then you don't suffer afterwards, you must not have cared. And neither of those is true. And that's kind of the whole point of an ENT, right? Is that sometimes they are too far gone and you don't try to stop it. And sometimes you don't suffer afterwards. You just keep going. But that doesn't mean that they don't care. Hmm. So like in that way, he's maybe he sees himself as sort of a, like a powerless Jesus, like somebody who should be Jesus, but is a mortal standing in without the power to actually do much, but still with like some impetus to to do it. I'm still trying to reconcile that because like there's evidence in both sides toward like how he feels about himself and the movie just goes completely off the rails in terms of like how it moves and how it like shows him. Yeah, if it helps any, I don't know if it does, but you know, the Catholic metaphors constantly and his mother saying that he looked like a priest, you know, a priest isn't there to be Jesus. A priest is there to help you in your journey with Jesus. Well, in and like in the, I'm sorry, Cody. Actually, you go next. No, I, I don't. I, I think this will probably be, um, hopefully, an, uh, an appropriate insertion. But these, um, and I'm sort of um, in in camp Jason in that I'm, I'm still trying to to reconcile certain things. And I, I very much like this movie, even though um, you know this sort of particular reading of how. Um, the viewer thinks Frank sees himself is still sort of up in the air for me. And uh, the, as far as the opening sequence goes um, you know, I, I saw a lot of those, those same things um, that we all have been kind of kicking around. The phrase that I kept coming back to is like guardian angel of death in that, like he is there to sort of receive those who are, who are passing. And there is this distinct framing of like, he hasn't saved anybody in a long time. There's a certain inevitability that comes with that. Meanwhile, there, I mean, the, the room that we're brought to, it's a room full of living people. And it almost felt to me like the, the sort of playing the music. um, And I could be misremembering the sequence of events, but like he had no, like he wasn't able to pull him back. He was sitting there, um, Patricia Arquette's character. Uh, everybody was just kind of sitting there. John Goodman had a, a big old sweaty face. Um, <laughs> it, every everywhere everywhere was dirty. The lighting was bad. You know, it's uh, you know it's bringing out the dead. Nineteen ninety nine. Um, and he su- he suggested playing the music, and I couldn't tell how much he actually thought that would work, as much as it was something that the the other active living participants could do. Um, you know, whether he, you know, Frank thought that, you know, uh, you know, they could maybe feel less helpless in the situation or just to like, um, divert the lightning rod elsewhere. Um, the sort of thing where, um, also, I mean, kind of gets back to like the, the Schrader and the, the labor, um, uh, thematic elements of of this discussion but the sort of anything to make it so it's not like entirely your fault like if he is a a, yes. a, a version of the angel of death then at least like you know um sh- kind of move the peas or, uh, around your plate to make it seem less apparent you know like hey like there's nothing there's nothing i can do but hey like one thing that's worked in the past, play some music he likes. And lo and behold, like in this case, it works. I don't know if he actually thought that that would work. I don't know how much he actually believes that um, something like that um, cosmically could bring someone back. I don't know how much he believes in, you know, this, this job he has um, to kill the evening hours. Um, But that's, I don't know. Those are the sorts of things that I'm still sort of playing with. However, that helps or hurts this, this exploration. Yeah. I'm so glad that you brought up that scene because I remember when I was watching 
when I was watching that and he said, why don't you play his favorite music or his favorite song? I've heard it helps. I remember thinking to myself, helps which way? Like, hmm. does it does it help him come back or does it help him go? Right? Like, because he had just talked about how he's waiting at the window, waiting for someone to let him go. And I think that that kind of set it up really well for like the which way is Nick Cage going with this in this movie? Does he want to help pull people back or does he want to help let people go? And I think, you know, by the end of the movie, it's very clear that his role is to help let people go when they need to. And and to reframe what that means, right? Like, I think that, I think you're right, Cody. Like, I especially really love that, like, how you framed it as like a guardian angel of death, right? But like, I think the problem, Frank's problem in this movie is he doesn't realize that's his role, right? Like, he thinks that saving people is his job and he's failing if he isn't saving people. And in my mind, that is the same sort of like seed of self-torture, this messiah complex that all of the EMTs have, that when sort of like routed through this this complex of labor and exploitation that we see, um, it becomes this this terrible like self-torture, right? That that turns people um hateful or turns them narcissistic or turns them alcoholic the way that Frank is, because it alienates them from the, the very people that they're supposed to be serving, right? Like, mm. and, and that's what I was saying about um, how these very same notions, right? Like EMTs enter because they want to be a part of this. Did you, did Cody eat a bean? Again, I love that we always do not, that stuff when I'm talking. That's so fun, watching, guys. Thanks not, for that. If you're not watching the video version of this, you must be, uh, you must be missing out. I saw a couple hands up though, while you were talking. You can finish your point. I have no idea what I was saying. <laughs> I, uh, I did like what you were saying. Um, I think that, you know, the the idea of like life is suffering is very big in this movie, right? And I think that that's part of, obviously Nick Cage feels that he tries to drown it out in every way possible, including, you know, like, please fire me. Please just let me get drunk. I need a cup of coffee. Just let me die, basically. And I think that a lot of the times why he feels so horrible when people come back is because he's bringing them back to suffering, right? He's not ending their suffering. He's bringing them back for 17 codes. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you know how painful doing a full code is in the hospital? That's the whole reason why people have do not resuscitate orders. And you're not doing it in a lot of cases, this movie would say for the person, you're doing it for the people around the person so that they feel better, right? Even the right. doctors were saying, this would not be my choice. The family who's not even in the waiting room just want us to keep doing this because they can't stand the idea of letting him go. Exactly. And Nick Cage says, no, I don't want to bring him back into this suffering. I want to let him go. And that's what makes him feel the best. And like, I wonder if it has to tie in with, it's not like an interesting formal thing, but the fact that whenever he, whenever they get in the ambulance and start like chasing down calls or whatever they're doing, if it's like objective based, the music kicks in and like a super cheesy fucking, like the, for the same blues riff song just keeps kicking in for the first like 20 minutes of the movie, every time they're behind the wheel. And it's like, again, it was one of those things that happened once. And I was like, as a product of the 1999, the, you know, provenance, then it happened again. And I'm like, this is an interesting choice. And then it happened again. And I thought this has to be to a specific end. Is it like, is it kicking in to that sense of, well, 
getting down to business. We're kicking off. This is what you expect EMTs to do before setting up, before like knocking down that setup later on in the movie where it's like, what's your conception of an EMT's job? Like Harry was saying, like the, the, what we're giving you is like a somewhat obviously highly stylized, but like hopefully emotionally resonant picture of an EMT's inner, you know, conflict struggle, sort of their tension of the, of the position. Um, and like those early set pieces of giving us like, really dramatic car crashes and uh, highly stylized rides and stuff. Is it, is it purposely setting that up? Yeah. Uh, I'm glad that you brought that up. Yeah. With like the way that they play with almost like the car chase tropes and the crazy music and everything. But at the same time, it's like literally nothing is something that like surprises and excites the ENT. Like they've seen it all before. It's like, yeah. they literally, crash the ambulance flip it upside down and then they get out and they're like not again like it's like <laughs> we're playing with this idea that it's like their life is an action movie derogatory right like it's not fun <laughs> that it's an action movie it sucks that it's an action movie and they don't like it well and, and again like that that music and the, those car chase sequences and that editing and the fact that it always looks like it's in the middle of the night and there's always a call coming in it's also anesthetizing right like we are we are being numbed exactly the way these guys are to the point where we could see why um, they come to they come to see their patients as sacks of meat, right? Or they come to see their lives in this like dream nightmare world that they inhabit because it's like after a while, you stop seeing the city, right? You stop seeing the human beings. You just start seeing the, the ghosts. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, wow. And yeah. I, I think that like in – that's a big thing that speaks to me so much ab about this movie, right? Is that in that, that like religious sense, right? Of like, this is what happens when you try to be a, a savior, right? Is you end up becoming separate from the people you're trying to save. And then you end up hating them, right? Like, like the way that these paramedics all sort of end up hating their, their charges in, in a lot of ways um, because they're, they're dismissed from, reality right like they're not seeing these people as human beings anymore they're seeing them as their job or they're seeing them as literally even in a blunter sense like the cause of their suffering right like there's this amazing sequence when nick cage and tom sizemore are just sitting and basically screaming looking out the like front of their ambulance and there's just red and white lights flashing on their faces and you know they're just like looking out at like the bowels of hell Right. Because that's what they see. That's what they've come to see New York at night as. And that's why New Nick wants out so bad. And that's why, like, nobody will let him be fired. Like, these people are in these, like, I, I know it's Frank. It's Nick Cage's character. Uh, they're, in, they're in these, um, these purgatories because of what they're subjecting themselves to. But that's the operative word, right? Because of what they're subjecting themselves to. It's they like, chose to suffer, well, it's like right? she says at the end, it's like, nobody is telling you that. It's your fault, except for you. And, and like that is the thing that Nick Cage has to let go of in this movie is this idea that he is personally responsible for everything that's happening um, and stopping it, right? Yeah, yeah. I wonder where the like constant imagery of the red, white, and blue comes in to that because like it's a recurring theme, obviously, with the – and it sounds stupid because, yeah, it's what's on ambulances and their lights flash red, white, and blue. But like it appears in two like really distinct scenes, I think. Um, there's the one where – I forget the, guy, the character's name, but the guy from the Oasis who falls and impales himself on his own uh, – I'm sorry. Cody is mouthing words, but he's on – see, you could just open – 
Why don't you just unmute, Cody? See. That would be no, this cool. Is, this is more fun. Sigh. No. Sigh. It was. It was Sigh. <laughs> like uh, Cyrus. Um. Anyway, uh, there's a scene where he's like not dying, but he's impaled there and he leans out and he like notices the beauty of the city and this incredible fireworks display of red, white, and blue explodes over the city skyline. And, you know, it, it's just beautiful. It looks like 4th of July. Um. And then small detail but later on the next time we see noel i think it is mark anthony's character uh he's like beating the shit out of cars in a really ragged part of town and he and and, uh, nick cage and tom sizemore go to like rough him up and then save him kind of thing but he's got like red white and blue dreads peppered in for the first time in the movie and i'm wondering like what is what is the point of that increasing like symbolism obviously we've tied it already to systems because we have not one but two mackins on this podcast already tied it to american systems but uh like is it is it intimating a certain amount of like american imperialist ideal of uh you know the the self-sacrificing uh healthcare worker what what is it doing there no i was just gonna like yell about the american healthcare system and i mean i think that's what it is like i think that during that that 17 minutes 17 minutes before we have a round hour so just go the fuck off well i mean in the the scene where noel is beating the shit out of those cars they're literally playing the clashes board of the usa like that's the song that's playing during that scene um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that like it's it's religious systems, it's moral systems, and it's labor systems that all intersect to turn people against one another here, right? Like, the and, f- and I mean, there's also the great scene um, with the the actor from The Wire. What's I don't remember what his name is, but Michael he, Williams. Thank, thank you. you, Cody's noties. Um, he's in the ambulance. He's bleeding out. He doesn't want to die. And side note, it's a great uh, character scene for Nick Cage too, because he hands the hand to the other guy and says, "If yep. you let if you let go of that, I swear to God, I won't kill you." Which is like very funny, <laughs> but also like really shows like he cares about how this guy passes if he does. Well, but but, but also like he won't take the hand himself, right? Um, but there's also uh, the great added throwaway line of like, like when I live through this, I'm joining the army where it's safe. Right. So it's like we're peppering mm. in these anti-American themes throughout here. It didn't just show up in the medical field as well. <laughs> Marty, well, you're you've done it again, you sicko. Well, it's it's just like it's everybody like I think that 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 line that Charlie brought up earlier, maybe Cody brought up earlier about how like when it wins when the EMT can take credit, they take all the credit. When they when there's blame to go around, they distribute it as much as possible. And that's it, right? Like that's what everybody's doing. That's what the system is about. Is that like people would love to blame death on paramedics, right? They would love to put all of it on a paramedic. It's like, well, like if that drug addict who got shot had just been saved by the paramedic, then the fact that they were a drug addict or the fact that they got shot wouldn't have mattered, right? Or if my dad naturally codes and dies, then I don't have to say I pulled the plug. Right. Like it's nobody wants to have to take responsibility. responsibility. And Nick Cage finds the globe by just taking responsibility. Taking, yeah. <laughs> taking responsibility at least to see these people and to like be with them, which like to me, this is what a lot of Paul Schrader movies are all about. Kind of. That's why the pickpocket ending keeps happening in all of them. It even kind of happens in this one. Um, but uh, it's it's about like Nick Cage's character has to return to the world that he left behind right like he has to he has to be willing to accept back into his heart like the people that he is keeping at arm's length because of how afraid he is to fail them by just sort of like realizing that it's not his job to save all of them it's his job to bear witness to them but i I think i think that like 
that's I think to your point about the the red, white, and blue stuff, like I think that that is just antithetical to like everything about the sort of American notions as set mm-hmm. up here, right? Like not not only in the the sort of like symbolic spiritual sense, but also like literally like Americans have a really tough time with death. Americans have a really tough time with addressing systemic issues because we love to blame everything on the individual. Um, mm-hmm. This movie is full of people who are blaming everything on the individual. The EMTs are blaming themselves. The drug addicts are blaming themselves. Uh, everyone is is blaming themselves for the hells that they inhabit without realizing that maybe hell is bigger than you. Maybe it has to do with more than just you. Right. And hell, I, I guess in Frank's case is, you know, uh, it, it goes against the sort of, um, you know, the idealized world that Frank and all of the rest of us would want to live in, which is you, you do your job, uh, the daily grind happens. Maybe you save these people's lives. Maybe you don't, but you can, at the end of the day, you know, you can just put it all away. You never have to think about these, these situations, these people, these, you know, this blood that maybe, or maybe isn't on your hands. You never have to think about it again. And like for, and that's, you know, I mean, the fact, the fact that Frank is haunted, I mean, the only thing worse than living with the guilt is living and literally being haunted by um by the images of these people because i mean it gets back to the whole thing of like it's continuous reminders of his his failings and um these things that you know he would love to just let go of but but he can't he you know he keeps not getting fired he has to keep going back out there and he keep uh, he has to keep seeing their faces that's why i mean the the sequence at um at sizes so um, it, I mean, the couple, the couple scenes at, at size place are, are great, but that first one, our introduction to it, you know, what, what should be, what should be, a, uh, an oasis, you know, what should be, um, uh, a nice, mo- uh, uh, sequence of solitude for Frank goes awry because we see him, you know, in more or less in this dream sequence, he is bringing back all these people that he couldn't any longer. And when he, it, it, when, you know, he gets to the, the sort of lucid part where, you know, the flip switch, uh, switches in his brain where it's like, oh, this is in fact a dream. It does like, it provides no comfort knowing that in, you know, in, in this, uh, this sit down where I'm uh, unconscious, these people are okay because that's just a reminder that like they aren't okay in, in real life. And he has that sort of, um, paradoxical reaction, I think, uh, I think as they call it. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. That's, uh, I, I have no stopping point. I just wanted to say that I really like that sequence. Yeah. Um, since we're talking about the couple of scenes that take place at SIDS, um, I do want to talk about Mary's character a little bit. Um, I wasn't super happy with her character. <laughs> I think Harry said you, you said that was par for course with this. A little bit. But um, I, I did really like the way that she explained um, her past life using drugs as like, I, it wouldn't have mattered to me if I was a nun or, you know, a druggie or whatever she calls it. It just mattered that I was running away. I just wanted to get away, which again, speaks to failed systems, um, something greater than her, but also just is a great way of characterizing it. Uh, I don't know. I didn't really love how, even though we're playing into this idea throughout the movie that Nick Cage is trying to be a savior, I feel like him trying to like white knight and save her didn't really resolve in a way that I was happy with because at the end of the movie, he falls asleep finally fulfilled in her arms. And it feels a little bit like he earned her 
in a way that I don't like, but I would like mm. to hear you guys. No, I mean, I think I agree with that. That's a problem I have with light sleeper and a problem I have with first reformed. It's kind of just a Schrader thing is that women are like kind of symbolic devices often. Um, I think that like she for him symbolizes like his return to the world, right? Like I think at the end of this movie, like I don't think that he, I don't think he will not be haunted anymore. And I don't think that they necessarily end up together. He didn't really find a way to exercise his demons. He just found a way to live in the world, right? With them. And like, I think that that's where all of the paradox comes to the head here is that like, okay, like if you love something, you're not supposed to let it get hurt. But like the more you love something, the more you're going to see it get hurt. What are you supposed to do about that? It's like, oh, if you try to stop the hurt, it'll make you hate the things you love, right? Like, I think that this movie Mm -hmm. really powerfully depicts that sequence of events. Um, and I think that Patricia Arquette's character sort of like um, gives a pretty good out for that because like it suggests that like you can just sort of like bear witness and be with that through whatever happens right and like you you just have to you have to remain with that pain you can't seek a way out from it because by the end of this movie he helps her not seek a way away from her pain uh, by right killing her dad basically and she provides him a way to stop trying to fix the pain and to just instead feel it and bear witness to it that's what that's what i get from it anyway but i think you're right in the sense that like she is very much there as part of his story in a lot of ways yeah Mm -hmm. no what you said really helps me um i think i feel a little bit better about it now it just it seems like there were a lot of scenes where he was explaining how the world works to her that didn't really quite land for me. Like, has she never been to a hospital before, you know, kind of thing. Um, but I did like a lot of things that they did with her character. I liked the quote that they said. I really liked that her hair was freshly growing out. So you could tell like she isn't bleaching it anymore. Mm. Um, I thought it was interesting how they did her costuming where she's wearing her mom's clothes because she's been staying up with her mom, but they're like, very conservative old lady clothes that she doesn't quite feel comfortable in. Mm -hmm. And all of those things kind of add up to that scene where she goes and she takes drugs and then it like kind of has to come back from there. So I did like a lot of things about it. I just didn't really like how much she seemed like a character device for, you know, Frank. Yeah. I mean, it definitely like she is like on paper and in reality, absolutely like I'm not going to say reduced to because I think her character has a lot more than that. But like by the end, it's like, oh, clearly this was written as a character to incite like to help incite change. If, even if by like date, here's why I'm having trouble to, uh, with this is because she he does like he does. uh, uh he lets her dad pass by mimicking his vital signs and letting him just die in his, in his, in the, in the, in the ICU. Um, and then he goes back and tells Mary, Hey, you know, he's gone, whatever. And in that moment, I remembered how much she was talking about, you know, like when she gets back to her apartment, she says, you know, I've been clean for three years or whatever. I had my life together. I had friends. I had, yeah, I have this nice apartment. Uh, and then my dad, you know, has this health problem and things started really falling apart kind of thing. She intimates that like her return to drug use, her, um, right. you know, that's a good point. Her, her yeah. frame mental state is tied directly to the health of her father. And that's like what loyalty does she feel like she owes him she hasn't spoken to him in three years maybe he was the original source of her drug use kind of thing like what what is that really owed yeah i think she said at some point in the movie that their last conversation was a very bad one um and that she wanted to see him awake one more time before he died Mm. 
Um, but well, but also, I mean, she's a character who was characterized by wanting to run away, right? But like yes. the only reason you want to run away is is because sort of like ironically if she didn't feel some obligation she had to run away from it right. wouldn't occur to her to run away from it right because, so she is because still, it's important yeah yeah she's still deeply bound by her parents right like she never left that neighborhood where she grew up yes. she still is there taking care of them and i think that that binding is the thing that this movie is trying to get us to break out of right because that same binding to sort of like my identity like my soul is tied to my ability to save other people or to these other people that's how you get to hate other people right because that's mm-hmm. how the you get to be like the girl at the that front desk who is like stop taking drugs if you don't want your heart to get faster mm-hmm. and faster, right? It's like, it, it becomes so easy. It's like, I could feel so good about myself if only you would stop killing yourself so that I could stop failing to save you, right? Yeah. Um, whereas I think that if if you divest yourself from that responsibility and from that codependence, essentially, yeah. Um, yeah. Of, of sort of like self-actualization in your duty to another person, that's yeah. that's how you can actually return to the world and actually sort of like be a part of the this sort of thing we've got going here. <laughs> and and therein I think is uh and Charlie correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's where some of your frustration must be coming from is that like Nick Cage is sort of given the ability to decide that for himself, to like free himself from his own uh, you know, I'm going to call them for shorthand hangups and find his glow sort of thing, where Patricia Arquette seems unable to do that as long as her father is alive. And she is also unable to go in there as his daughter and like kill him herself. She's, she's not able to like take that agency, I guess it is sort of removed from mm-hmm. her by Nick cage so that they can both like, they are both in a better space identifiably, but he has the freedom to do that for himself. And he takes that freedom. That's a really good point. Her yes. as well. Yeah. I love the way that you put that. It's like, they've both been throughout the entirety of this movie in their own like personal hell. Right. And Nick Cage kind of finds his way out of it by realizing the kind of like person he wants to be and how he gets this glow and enacting it versus she just kind of gets out of her personal hell by like him doing something that she doesn't even know that he did. And then Mm. he comes over to her house and tells her about it. And it's like, your dad's dead. Would you like to comfort me while I sleep? (laughs) I fixed fixed all your trauma. Your dad's dead. Uh, Let's lay down. (laughs) There's also like in the, maybe the second or third most surreal sequence of the movie, when he kills the dad, he like takes off his shirt and he's already wearing the like hookups that are, and he like literally takes his life, right? Like, and I mean like, I mean that in both senses of the word, right? Like he, he kills the guy, but he also like, he hooks himself up to the machine and and uses it to breathe for him. Mm -hmm. He like adopts. And it's like, it's this very moving sort of life affirming sequence, right? Because you can tell that like, as Nick Cage is doing that, he is also literally like committing back to life, right? It's like, oh, I have to continue to live in the world so I can do this for people. But you're right. Like it would have been really good if Patricia Arquette could have been there (laughs) or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm could have had knowledge of it i really like as a small note uh maybe we're headed toward the junk drawer here but like as a small note the fact that nick cage is able to convincingly portray the vital signs of a dying man of a mind in the icu i think is a very funny character touch that he's looked dead the entire movie and then he's able to mimic the heart rate and the breathing rate of a guy who's been dead 14 times over the last 12 24 hours he's on life support is the thing. Uh, yeah. uh, okay. Okay, Mac, and you're both like I mean, this it is then. it is really good 
evidence for Charlie's point, right? That Nick Cage yeah. is basically like a like he's a spirit in this movie. Like he's yes. no longer really living in the world of the living up until the very end of the movie when he sort of comes back to the living. Has Nick um, Cage yet been in a zombie movie that wasn't this one? Uh, he was in Vampire's Kiss. He's been in vampire yeah. movies. He that's has not a really zombie, good though. Harry, Harry, Harry I'm going to correct you. That's not a it's zombie. A, that's a different movie. kind it's of undead, but it's still Universal undead. monster. Witness the birth of a dark universe, Harry. <laughs> uh, okay. I, I, I do want to see if we... Do we have any final... Th- We're coming up on the hour, and I love where the conversation's gone so far. Do we have any other talking points before we start heading to our little jibs, jabs, and then final segment of our show? Uh, this is one of Scorsese's less, or in maybe even least lauded movies um i can kind of see why i guess but i think it's really good um personally i guess i would just put my put my flag in that i think that like the schraderisms really sing for me in this one and i think particularly um the the sort of like very quintessentially scorsese empathy of this movie where not only is it giving you a way to work through and process the feelings that these characters have but it also depicts what gets them to that point very very astutely um i think i could follow nick cage's psychosis in this movie very closely because i think it's something that like personally resonated both with me and i would imagine with a lot of people especially a lot of people who profess to love the world and its inhabitants right um i think it's very easy for you know suffering to come from not only attachment but love right and i think that like there's something really powerful for me in this movie about the fact that it it can demonstrate how how exactly that attachment can turn to self-suffering by way of your own assuming responsibility and isolating yourself from the rest of the world in favor of making yourself into this sort of savior, which you're not, right? I think that there's something Mm -hmm. just really dramatically resonant about that in this movie. Yeah, I I must say, as far as like where it fits in uh, Scorsese's filmography and how it's considered, like the two things that that I've heard on this podcast that have convinced me most, uh, and I know Cody and I were in like similar spacey spaces about this movie um, that has sort of crystallized it. Charlie, almost as soon as she got out of the theater, was saying like it's more of a tone movie rather than like a strict follow the plot and connect the dots type movie. And me, I'm a simple man. I'm Greek. I just want like ethos, logos, pathos. I just want the hubris of it all. I want to see the the down. Logos, Lanthimos. He went on the Odyssey. There's like the three different people who are the, come on. But it's the Odyssey. It's also got like virgin twin births. It's got, uh, you know, passing into the under, it's got all sorts of stuff. And it's just like, it gets way messy toward the end. And I was trying to reconcile in my head while I was watching it. Why is it getting way messy? Why are we following this tightly to his psyche? uh, And yet trying to make larger statements about things that go beyond him sort of thing. And I just couldn't reconcile those things. But knowing, like, realizing that it is less about the individuals of the plot and focusing on, like, the pacing and acts and structure, it is far more about, and, you know, you can do that and it, like, it still works as a movie. It is far more about, hey, consider, consider what's happened, consider, like, the, what's been building, consider what has, like, what's tearing as we're going, what is changing as we're going. Um, and then Harry's point about, uh, that you were just making, um, about how, like, all that suffering need not be on, the person that yeah, has like you're, right. you're taking like that onto not, yourself those ghosts out there aren't haunting you they're just ghosts they're, they're just, just haunting. Ghosts. And, and if you turn around and see them over your shoulder that's not a haunting that is you turning around and seeing them over your shoulder you they're know? just there and they're yeah. there for all of us right this i mean that's the what, scary um, sad and true thing about it it's also what uh, my neighbor totoro is about but cody uh do you have any final thoughts about this movie 
Uh, sure. I, I guess a couple, hopefully quick things. Um, yeah, I mean, speculating, uh, first as to, I mean, uh, rather, I will not be speculating too much as to like why this isn't a more, um, beloved entry in Scorsese's filmography. Um, I think I like this movie quite a bit. Um, it does not that we need to audit Scorsese's, you know, um, career, uh, through this point, but it is, I mean, just like kind of looking at the befores and afters. I mean, you have Goodfellas um, in, in the early 90s. And then after that, a slew of movies that are, um, I'm not going to rank them. Aaron Grossman is not on the pot. I'm not going to, to be ranking anything. Um, nice try, Daphnis. Um, after Goodfellas, Cape Fear, Age of Innocence, and Casino, which, um, I mean, I, I think people know, and like in some circles, um, especially age of innocence some would say like oh well the, you, like there's some real like underrated gems there um but age of innocence you, rocks dude that movie's so good age of age of innocence does rule um i can't wait to revisit that i saw that for the first time within the past couple months um a, after those three you have kundun and then bringing out the dead um which i, I think gauging public perception there is sort of like a um a, a canyon there and then gangs of new york after that and it isn't until after gangs of new york comes out which i don't know i don't know if people like gangs, gangs of new york i saw it once and i didn't really i um, aaron aaron really hates that movie yeah I, i'm not big on it yeah, I mean, uh, so I don't know. I'm I'm on the same team as Aaron for once. We don't have to get too much into that now. But it, Aviator 2004 and Departed oh. a couple years after, oh. and then it's sort of like his upswing, um, I guess. So I I don't know if it's just a matter of time and place uh, or what, but um, I don't know if for whatever reason you're listening to this and haven't seen the movie, um, maybe do it because um, I think it's worth watching. And then the only other thing, I, I think it came up a couple of times. It's not worth spending a lot of time on him, but... Uh, uh, Frank's boss is such a great character. Um, just, you know, kind of the, the spaces in between the sequences where, you know, he's out with his, um, or Frank's out with his, his paramedic, um, uh, buddies is a strong word, but you know, the, the John Goodman's, uh, of the world, the Ving Rames is the Tom Sizemore's and him just, it, it, the, his reading of, would you get out of here before I give you a big hug? Just gave me the biggest laugh um uh for the movie and in a movie that is not particularly easy to laugh at um but that was a nice uh i don't know i i just i love those scenes with him and they were a handful of the not so much bigger handful of scenes that um help make this movie like watchable despite you mm-hmm. know on paper not feeling like a very watchable movie yeah uh to that point and it's not a big one but mm-hmm. i think it's important uh Ving Rames makes this movie incredibly watchable for I think he's all of so his good in it, dude. Runtime. Oh my yes. god, he's, he's got those very Pentecostal uh, "Let us pray" scenes. He's got all of the funniest lines. He's got like this witty repartee with Queen Latifah on the dispatch radio. It's just, yeah, I mean, it's it's like it's a perfectly it's like the one regressive character that you can really really laugh at. That you can just like oh they're, they're doing a thing with this with this character in this movie specifically, and it just works it's it's very he's very funny in this movie and i barely recognized him for some reason i guess i'm way too used to mission impossible ving rames where he's like always kitted up he looks like 007 himself and he's got the hat and stuff but this is like i don't know uh very spry looking ving rames behind the wheel of a of a large automobile um okay well we'll call that i guess the end of our uh discussion but we have one last segment um Charlie, I, I dare I venture a guess as to whether or not you know how to help us ring in this segment of the show. I 
think I know how it goes. And I know the I timing can. is going to be perfect because you are in the same exact spot as our own Harry Mackin. Uh, yeah, and, and our microphones us. definitely won't cut out when we use them both at the same time. As long as so. you're not shrieking. I mean, Charlie, just give it your best shriek. We'll, we'll fix it in post. It's the segment that we like to call... <gasps> Cody's Cody's Cody's. Cody's. Yes. Wow. Thank you, everybody. That was quite the paradoxical reaction. And um, I can't promise I'll speed through this. I know some of us have bedtimes that um, we are already well past. Um, but well, this will probably take a standard amount of time. Uh, <laughs> going back at looking back at previous seg- <clears throat> excuse me previous segments, my fourth spicy jelly bean is starting to catch up to me. Um, my throat is decaying. Um, I'm descending into hell. In honor of the movie that we just finished discussing, we will be bringing out the cast of Bringing Out the Dead. Um, and Whoa. you might be asking yourself, what does that mean? And you know what? I'm about to tell you. So what I'll do is present a prompt somewhat related to one of the the non-Nicolas Cage members of the ensemble of Bringing Out the Dead. Uh, I figure we'll probably be talking about Nicolas Cage a, a good amount this summer. Um, so I'm just tabling him for a little bit. Sorry, Nick, come on the pod. After each statement that I utter, I will ask y'all in alphabetical by first name order to respond. So Charlie, you're on the hot seat. Um, you'll get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct answer. And the person with the most points at the end will win as always. Uh, newcomers might not be aware of this, but trivia mafia rules apply here for these segments, which means use your noodles, not your Googles. With that, let us go ahead and jump in. We've got five prompts here, uh, five uh, actors um, of various pedigrees, um, all pretty elite pedigrees, if I do say so myself. And we're going to start with John Goodman, who played the character uh, Larry Verber. The credits say I didn't pick up on that, um, but I might be a, a dum dum. Um, but he's one of the other paramedics that Frank Pierce uh, shares an ambulance with uh, early on in the movie, sort of the first actor. So, how tall is John Goodman, Charlie? I don't even get like multiple choice. I just have to say. Nope. Ooh, yep. This is Cody's just got, noties. Just have to say. I'm going to say he's 5'11". 5'11", says Charlie. All right. Um, and now I feel like I'm going to preface this. I In previous games where the two of you have been on, there have been weird, if I remember this correctly, correctly, Jason, correct me if I'm wrong, little, you know, symbols or like hand gestures or eyebrow raises, facial expressions, giving inclinations that the answer might be one way or the other. Um, and for whatever reason, the screen of, of the Mackins is, is uh, freezing for me. So I can't you know, watch like a hawk, but I'm warning you, Mackins. Don't if I, if I see anything untoward, I am playing the entirety of the Jeopardy theme over your next answer. Ooh, I love it. Well, Super. You a good time. Producer. Um, anyways, Harry, what is your guess uh, for John Goodman's height? Oh man. I want to, th- I think he's a tall boy. I'm going to go with six, one. He's six, one. Harry's going with six, one. And Jason, how tall do you think John Goodman is? I can't say, but I, I know how tall I want him to be. I want him to be tall enough that I can wrap my arms around him and not reach his chin with my forehead. So he's 6'2". Jason is going with 6'2". And all right, so the guesses have been collected. Going off a few sources on the internet, John Goodman is reportedly six foot two inches. Jason, Daphnis, you can hug him to your heart's content. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, you're Jay, gonna get as that Jason, 
every right answer, uh, by which I mean like that that one because nothing else is going to get right. Hey, as is your right, um, as Jason says to I John think we, Goodman. I think we all won tonight because John Goodman is six feet, two six inches feet tall. Six feet, two inches. Six feet, two. Yeah, we're telling him to get out of here before we give him a big hug and our chins hey. or the heads don't reach his chin or whatever whatever Jason said. Um, so point, Jason. Um still very much anybody's game i cannot <laughs> stress this enough um question number two up uh up next we do have ving rames who played the character marcus in the movie bringing out the dead 1999 in many imdb profiles for those unaware they've got a section dedicated to trademarks of that particular artist what i'm going to do here is list three ving rames trademarks per imdb two will be real one will be fake and your job will be to pick out the fake trademark. So I'm going to read the three of them, starting with the first one, which reads as follows. Deadpan-style delivery in situations that wouldn't otherwise be funny. So that's the first one. The second one, his fully shaved head. And the third trademark, colorful, often oversized, and sometimes unusual hats of many styles and types. So which one of those is the fake IMDb patented trademark trademark for Ving Rhames Charlie. Do you mean trademarks like in his movies or like for himself? Yes. Oh. Well, I don't know what his personal taste in hats are, but maybe he seems like the kind of guy who would have a lot of cool hats. So I'm going to go with B is the false one. All right, Charlie's locking, Charlie's locking in. Yeah, Charlie is locking in a shaved head. It is etched in concrete, not the letter, the artist rendering. They just carved out a shaved head. It actually looks pretty good. Um, uh, it uh, coming soon to the trial of shop. Harry, what is your guess for the fake? Trademark? I'll go with A, the deadpan one. That one sounds right. false. Okay, short, sweet, to the point. And Jason, will you be covering the spread, or will you be uh, taking us on a little different adventure? It's a tri-love tradition. I gotta cover the spread. I've, I always feel like I'm being pinched into this, but I, this is the one I believe must be true, based only on the few movies I've seen him in, is that he does wear colorful and often oversized hats. But I'm also a little bit su- suspicious. I'm just extending this time, because it's my... I, I'm, I'm the bedtime sleepy boy. But I feel like you must have changed one word in that description, like colorful oversized is actually like colorful, irregular fitting or some shit, like some Cody's noties shit like that. So I'm going to go see. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know why these responses and these thought processes always paint me out to be some big villain, some crazy trickster. Um, but you're right. Uh, in, in that regard, anyway, you're not right in, in that you, you pick the, the correct, uh, tr- ah, uh trademark. Uh, the action, the fake trademark is actually a, so Harry got the point there. There was, um, so that, yeah, the deadpan style delivery one, I, I just kind of made that up. There was one trademark from, from IMDb's list that remarked on Ving Reams' speech, which read, and I quote, a deep booming voice. Well, that's not fair. He had a really funny deadpan line in this movie. He did, which is why I thought that was a good fake trademark to which, include. Which, which line do you think, Charlie? Uh, that's when uh, Nick Cage, he says, what are the voices telling you to do? And he says, they're telling me to kill you. And he says, that's not funny. <laughs> good point. So we're all right in a way, um, but for that but particular, I am, because way, I Harry was the most right. Will you not step over when I step on when I'm trying to give you just a little bit of props? We're gonna keep doing the poot.mp3 if you don't. We cool have jet, the young man. Bring it on. 
We do have the poots. Um, that is a shirt also coming to the Trilove shop. For question number three, we are going to call out Michael Kenneth Williams, uh, RIP, who is credited as drug dealer. Uh, and for this question, we're going to invoke the Rashomon rule, which is that no film needs to be longer than Rashomon, a perfect film released in 1950 and directed by Akira Kurosawa. Rashomon comes in at 88 minutes. So I ask you all, what percentage of Michael Kenneth Williams's total credited works on Letterboxd abide by the Rashomon rule? So we're not doing, you know, just feature films, all credited works on Letterboxd. Um, that's what we're going off of. I realize I'm I'm spelling that out explicitly for the primarily for the person who's not here on the episode who would split hairs about that. Um, but just so it's on the record. Um, so yeah, Charlie, percentage of works of Michael Kenneth Williams that abide by our world famous Rashomon rule. How am I supposed to know that? Um, I don't know. I didn't know you were going to be on the episode. I thought this was just going to be Harry and Jason who have done this hundreds of times. Throw me a bone. Um, but I, I would like to know. All right. I'm going to go with 20% so that if these guys go higher than that and it ends up being low, I'll steal the point. Hey, you know what? You're, you're she's she's min-maxing Cody's the process. This is not right. Yeah. Is that, I'm going to assume that's video games and move on. Um, Harry, your guess next. Yeah, so I'm actually super glad that you pointed out that it's like all credits. Um, I'm not totally... I don't really do IMDb because I suck, I guess, but... Um, I, I believe he's mostly a television actor, uh, best known for The Wire. And like most Wire episodes are are under 90 minutes. So if individual episodes of television shows are on IMDb, then it, it would be a very high percentage. So I'm going to go with like 75%. That's my rationale. I'm going to stick with it. Just, just to make it abundantly clear, we are going by total credited works on Letterboxd. See, I should have paid more attention. Because I know that I know that the wire isn't on Letterboxd. Or wait, I think it's not. Individual episodes certainly aren't. I already said I already made my peace with my answer. All right. So locking you in seventy five percent. They are etching that in concrete uh, as we speak. But for all intents and purposes, we're going to say that that's the final guess for you. And then Jason, what is your guess? I'm going to go fifty five percent. Cover the spread, Jason maybe. Is... <laughs> yeah, um, spread them question mark i regret that it's late of the 60 works of michael kenneth williams's uh uh, filmography the 60 works of michael kenneth williams i'll I'll take that again on letterboxd that have runtimes posted 12 of them come in at or under 88 minutes which if you do that quick math gets us to 20 percent charlie mackin jesus christ on the nose oh my god and you were so scared you were so scared but you got it exactly now, oh, this also, is you did a really good job of having a poker face when I said that, Cody. <laughs> I am so glad it came through. Uh, uh, were you going to say something, Harry? Yeah, just RIP yes. to that guy. Uh, he's Michael K. Williams is a he's a phenomenal actor. He's so good. He um, passed. Like, yes. Did he pass early this year or late last year? Uh, September uh, twenty twenty one. Yeah, man, gone yeah, far too R. soon. RIP. Uh, yeah. Uh, Pivoting back to our dumb little endeavor in, uh, in comparison, um, everybody is tied up in this in this game of ours, this podcast game. Everybody's got one point uh, a piece, um, and we've got a couple questions left for our fourth and second to last question. 
uh, follow the thread here. We're going to shout out Judy Reyes, who played uh, actually the ICU nurse in that final sequence where uh, he was, uh, you know, taking his life, life support, all those good mm-hmm. metaphors. Um, J- Jason, was that a hand raise? Did you want to cut in? Was that Carla from Scrubs? Wow. Good call, Jason. Yeah, um, I too, but, but I was like, I was freaking okay. myself out with it because I was like, what are the odds that she's playing a nurse again? Right. I, know. Like, I was like, why does I she look just thing. like that? Sorry, go ahead. Cody, please. No, that's fine. No, no. Hey, uh, the the we, the wheels are, are burning on on the blacktop here. I'm I'm rubbing my hands. I'm so that's eager right. to to take us here. So, um, Judy Reyes, uh, who played an ICU nurse near the end of uh, Bringing Out the Dead, and who also famously played Carla Espinosa on the TV show Scrubs, which co-starred Zach Braff, who is currently dating Florence Pugh. Wow. Um, we're ending up similar to what we've done in previous games. I'm going to read off three quotes allegedly uttered by Florence Pugh because I thought that would be a funny direction to take this. Um, do, 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 do. Uh, I hate yep. my boyfriend. Please take him away from me. Take me <laughs> away from him. That Harry. Uh, that, that's the quote, right? That's the real one. I uh, low key, I considered taking this game that way, but um, we will not be going that way as much as I want to. Um, I'm gonna yep, read off three quotes allegedly uttered by Florence Pugh. Two of these utterances will be for real, again, allegedly, and one will be fake. Your task will be to pick out the fake quote. So I'll read off, um, rather, I'll read off all three of them, leave it to each you to pick out the imposter afterward. First quote Every time Midsummer and everyone involved in the film gets nominated, it's amazing. It's first quote. Second quote, I used to reenact Titanic all the time. And third quote, The Silence of the Lambs is my favorite book and favorite film. So which one of those is the fake quote? Um, allegedly, I'll, I cannot stress that enough. Um, which one is the fake alleged quote? Charlie. Okay. This is, mm, I'm, I don't have a lot of confidence here, but she's the same age as me, I think. So I think Titanic might have been too early for her to be a childhood fixation. So I'm going to go with that one is fake. All right. We're locking in uh, the second option, the Titanic quote. Um, Harry, what are you thinking? Could you read A for me again? I'm sorry. Sure. Uh, Every time Midsummer and everyone involved in the film gets nominated, it's amazing. Okay, well, I think that I'm going to go with C because I think you changed it. And it's actually Manhunter, Michael Mann's Manhunter is my favorite movie. And Red Dragon is my favorite book. Fascinating. Um, I didn't, hold on. Did I read these prompts correctly? Are these three quotes allegedly uttered by Harry Mackin? Um, We'll figure that out in post. Uh, (laughs) Jason, I don't read, so I haven't read Red Dragon, but I do like Manhunter very much. Uh, hey, shout outs to Manhunter. Come on the pod. Um, it, we'll settle for our resident Manhunter. Jason, what is your your picky here? Covering the spread or not? You know me, baby. I'm going to cover that spread like butter. And I'm going to say that my justification is the same as for the one that I fucked up. Uh, and it's that I think you might have changed the word amazing from like outstanding or splendorific or whatever the hell she actually said. She's stupendous. She's she's 26 years old. She uses some Gen Z bullshit vocabulary. Splendorific. Yeah, I could see that. Um, Shout outs to Flo. Was that your impression Um, of Florence? uh, Not it's uh, yeah. um, The dog days are over. I don't know if you you're aware, but um, the imposter quote is a, the the first one. Oh god! So Jason got the got the point. Um, let's fucking go. Dot. Uh, it's too loud. MP3. I can't do that to my own ears again. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. Um. So yeah, the actual alleged quote is as follows: Every time 
Lady Macbeth and everyone involved in the film gets nominated. Mm. It's amazing. And that film is just fine. So Wait, I've heard. I was going to say, so it's, it must not be amazing very often because I can't imagine that movie won a lot of awards. Because the not, one time. It was kind anybody... of an indie darling. Sorry, <laughs> I Jason, go ahead. she was into the Titanic. She must have like an older sibling or something. She's got I, a brother. I don't know if he's older or younger. I mean, I think, sure maybe, I think we might be underselling like the importance of that. Even if just her parents watched it. Think about how much you, shit you watched that your parents watched. Like Titanic was 97. 97. Yeah, she was born in 96. What the hell? Yeah, but it was a, you don't, uh, Titanic was huge for like years. Well, literally. Yeah. She yeah. was probably, she was probably um, watching it when she was like disaster of all time. Yeah. yeah. Very, yeah. So, very big boat. Yeah, it. I mean, it's either, I, you know, the, if the overlap wasn't quite there where she would have experienced it firsthand, maybe there's, you know, some, a loved one in her life who is considerably older, who would maybe have had that sort of influence for, for introducing. All right. Um, I can see. Much, much you, what do you think she fucking watches it with Zach Braff do you Ew. think they really enjoy yeah. him to know why are you doing Jack Nicholson voice <laughs> we're moving I, uh, along to question I, five Jack okay. uh, no sorry go ahead Jason <laughs> thank you for getting that out what percentage of like Gen Z just you walk up to somebody who looks like they're a teenager on the street what percentage of them do you think has seen the Titanic Hmm, that's a good question. I don't mean the uh, boat. Well, Charlie, I'm not familiar Charlie, with do not try Titanic. To get I, I don't mean the boat. Nope. Do not mean the boat. I mean the film based on the boat. <laughs> I was going to say that. Assholes. No, I was going to say, I don't think that she and me would be considered Gen Z by a lot of people. Um, 96. Uh, but I was going to say, I think that there was a period where like Titanic was really big. And then like people didn't see it because they still had like DVDs and stuff. Um, and now it's like it's streaming, so it probably had like a renaissance at some point. Mm. So I think it might actually be kind of high. Yeah, you, you have a good point. I, I always discount the streaming thing. Yeah, I mean, if Flo didn't do like the OGs did and watch it on the, the two VHS tapes that came in that fucking box, I know because I, I can picture it sitting on my family, like my family back home, our movie chest and that Titanic box does not fit because it is humongous. It is two VHS tapes <laughs> long. The piece of shit. Flo, when you Cameron. think about it, Flo was the worst thing to ever happen to the, Titan- to the Titanic. Oh, mercy. Uh, Go to the last on. question, if you please. We're moving along to the fifth and final question. And folks, we turn to who else? But Nestor Serrano, who played Dr. Hazmat in Bringing Out the Dead, and infinitely more importantly, played the character Gomez in American classic The Day After Tomorrow. Um, you love to see it. I'm going to list off four films that Nestor Serrano has been in, including The Day After Tomorrow. And what I'm going to ask each of you all to do is rank them in order of highest to lowest production budget um i know that's everybody's specialty um and i can see the exchanging of glances we're all in hysterics it is late in the evening um so uh, i'm again ranking them in order of highest to lowest production budget you will get a point for each correctly slotted film and again there's going to be four films in the mix so if you get the order perfectly correct you're going to get four points if two of the films are in the right places you'll get two points Etc. Etc. You can imagine all the various scenarios that might come up here, um, and so with do I that, get three, I not... right? do I get three points, Cody? Is that what you mean? Uh, if you don't shut the hell up, you'll get no points. What happens um, if I get but, but two of them right and one of them wrong, and then I don't answer the last one? 
with that, I will now read the list of films y'all are trying to rank from highest to lowest production budget, and I'll try and say them loud enough so that those of you in the peanut gallery can hear them. Uh, so we've got 1995's Bad Boys, 1999's The Insider, 2004's The Day After Tomorrow, and 2014's Captain America, The Winter Soldier. So again, ranking these from highest to lowest production budget. I will read off the titles again to vamp just a little bit. Um, Bad Boys, The Insider, The Day After Tomorrow, and Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Captain America, The Winter Soldier, for those um, who maybe didn't remember or or have forgotten or what, um, some folks cite as being a great example of a Cold War era thriller. um, And that's largely said by people who don't really know what a Cold War era thriller is. Um, So that's good fun. Um, Have I I killed enough time, Charlie? Do you feel comfortable enough in your ranking or, or should we say some other fun things? I'm going to go for it because the only one of these I've seen is Captain America. So we're going to say that that one's the highest. Uh, And then we're going to do Day After Tomorrow, then Bad Boys, then The Insider. Because I have heard of the other two. (laughs) You haven't seen The Insider? Michael Mann's The Insider? I don't know what that is. Anyway, owned. Uh, Mac, Mac <laughs> suck it, Harry. Mac, Mac has brought up the, has brought up fucking Michael Mann twice on this podcast, and he's been shut Listen, out both. The Insider is a time. Michael Mann film. Okay, well I don't then know. Maybe what... my ranking is gone, but I am locking it in, sending it over to <laughs> to, to Harry. Uh, here, but before we just it, it is you know the rules of the the Nodies Academy dictates that I must read them back to make sure I have this exactly yeah. correct per, per your preference. We've got Captain America: The Winter Soldier, The Day After Tomorrow, Bad Boys, and The Insider. Is that right? Correct. Okay, perfect. Excellent. Um, over to Harry. What's your order? Uh, that was exactly my order as well. Uh, I have seen Michael Mann's The Insider. It mostly takes place in a dude's house. Um, I, Michael Mann shot it on digital, so I don't know if that makes it more expensive or less expensive. Great Pacino performance. He probably cost a lot. Um, in the interest of not just replicating Charlie's, I'll switch around day after tomorrow in Bad Boys, though I don't think that's actually right. I think Charlie nailed it. Uh, okay, so okay, I did, once you said you put in the same as Charlie's, I wrote it down, but I'm crossing things out. Okay, so to make sure I have this exactly correct, we've got um, Harry, your order, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, Bad Boys, The Day After Tomorrow, and The Insider? That's correct. Yep. Oh, okay. Excellent. All right. Locking that in, it is being etched onto a, a stone slab as we speak. And finally, Jason, your order, if you please. I'm going Day After Tomorrow, uh, highest to lowest. Day After Tomorrow, Winter Soldier, Bad Boys, and The Insider. Roger Dodger. Okay. So, um, once again, reading those off. The Day After Tomorrow... Captain America, colon, the Winter Soldier, uh, Bad Boys, and the Insider. You are correct. All right. Well, let's hope uh, at least one of y'all is correct. We'll we'll see. Thank, I'll say it in advance. Thank you for participating. The correct order of highest to lowest production budget for this particular foursome is as follows. Coming in first, um, out of left field with $170 million is Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Um Coming in next with a $125 million production budget, we have The Day After Tomorrow. Uh, coming in third with a production budget of $68 million, we have Michael Mann's The Insider. And coming in at the end, uh, $19 million budget, Bad Boys. And so, if my math is correct, um, Charlie got two of those. 
Harry got one. Jason came out with a, a nice, uh, nice donut. And so the tally from from the the rest of the game, I've got Charlie as our winner. Three, two, Woo! two. There she goes. Jason, could you hit there that for us? There she goes again. <laughs> but you had twice the Mackins, uh, so I, I count that uh, a small handicap. Hmm. What? Hmm. Yeah. If, if anything, being in the same room as me is a is a handicap against Charlie. So she, she won even in spite of that. Um, also, I should have known that, like, when did The Insider come out? Was that 2008? The Insider? 99. Oh, really? Okay. Well, that throws my whole curve off. Never mind. I have nothing to say. It was a Michael Mann film. Right. Well... <laughs> 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 Thanks for having that, me and for letting you win this game. Uh, it, that was very fun. <laughs> promise I didn't let you win this game. Yeah, Charlie. nobody's ever let anybody win anything on this show except for Cody when he rolled over on uh, last year's Golden Berries. I gotta have. A we both did well. Yeah, we both did. We were gonna go see a Romero film, a, an amazing Romero film. Uh, that I did not get to see at the Trilon. Justice for Maggie Chung. Justice for Eric Romero. Um, this is not meant to me uh, meant to be my pop off uh, segment because I did not win this game. If anything, I lost having remembered the the <laughs> follies of previous award shows. I'm going to mute myself. <laughs> uh, let, let me take you back, listener, to I don't know an hour and forty five minutes ago when we said we can keep this under an hour. Uh, thank you so much, Charlie, for joining for another episode of Try Love. I hope you come back soon. This was wonderful. Uh, I like doing these fresh out the shower uh, episodes. This was this They're was best, a lot of fun. Dude. This one like a lot day. of stuff. I would have definitely gotten in my own head about way too many of these ideas. Um, Charlie, remind people where they can find you: the Twitter box, the letter box, uh, wherever you want to be found, boxed. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Charlie Mander thirteen. Cool, cool. Uh, am I going to pressure you into revealing your letterboxed handle? I am. What's your letterboxed handle? It might be the same thing. I don't know off the top. Question mark, question she never mark. uses uh, it. I always bully her to use it, but she never does. Maybe this will yeah. help. Actually, uh, I, I got it right here. It's actually a Dapper Dan man. Um, uh-huh. So we'll follow okay. Charlie. Oh, that's such a good name. I should have thought of that. I would have totally used it. That but... makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, thank you so much again, Charlie, for being on. And thank you very much, listener, for listening and for supporting movies at the Trilon. You can do so at Trilon.org or by following them on, tri- on Twitter at Trilon Cinema and Instagram as well. Uh, my name is Jason. This is our podcast called Trilove. You can find us on Twitter, Trilove Podcast. Look forward to more Nick Cage episodes. We've got a really fun slate of guests lined up for the rest of the series. Um, hey, get in touch if you want to talk about movies uh, because we love hearing from new voices on this show. Uh, we've uh, we've got I, I don't know why I was going to repeat that we've got the rest of the Nick Cage series coming, so I will just cut myself off early. It is Jason's Briss, and my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I had four spicy jelly beans from the Jelly Belly brand, uh, Bean Boozled Jelly Beans, um, throughout the course of this episode. So if I sounded a certain way, maybe that's why. Um, The flavors, I can't remember the exact order, um, but the flavors I ingested were cayenne, uh, habanero, Carolina Reaper, and jalapeno. So if you want to recreate the Narvison gauntlet uh, in your own humble abode, feel free to do that. Hashtag... Um, what did I just call it? The, the Narvison Gauntlet? Yeah. Yeah. Ha- hashtag Narvison Gauntlet. Let's not get that trending. I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I've BH. 
I've been Harry Mack, and Jason, never say Jason's bris on this podcast ever again. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Here's your dinner. I wheel, you heal. kitchen give me a drink of water
You know what? We got Jan coming around here later with a, a bottle of wine for you, baby. But I gotta go. things going too. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. Uh-huh. Go, go, go. Funny at all. 